I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the symbols contained in the very real items of scripture to discover a greater meaning and depth. For the last two lessons, we've been going through the blueprints for the construction of the tabernacle. Before we begin, I just want to apologize for the sound quality in some of the most recent episodes. Uh, some of my equipment failed on me during COVID-19, and I have not had a chance to address the issues until just recently. Perfectly, this episode from here on out will sound a whole lot better, and we'll be able to make a lot of progress without the annoyance of various buzzes and things going on in your ear. So for the last two lessons, we've been going through the blueprints for the construction of the tabernacle. And in doing so, we went through the articles of the tabernacle two times. The first time we examined the tabernacle as a pattern of how God approaches men. And we saw that he begins in the heart and he works his way outward. And as we considered this pattern, we recognized that the Ark of the Covenant is in a way a model of the human heart and what a circumcised heart is supposed to look like. It should contain within it the words of the covenant and it should be covered over with atonement. And it should reflect always on God's provision and the authority of the high priest to bring life to things that are dead. Then we saw the table of the bread of the presence of God and recognized the symbol used throughout scripture of bread being likened to the word of God. And continually shining its light upon the bread is the seven-branched lamp that becomes a picture of the Holy Spirit and the sevenfold spirit of God. And situated between these two, just outside, the heart is the altar of incense which pictures the prayers that we send up before the Father and King of all on a continual basis. All three of these representing the nefesh of a person, that inward reality that creates the identity of a person. And covering all of these inward realities, there are several curtains. The first curtain revealing the mingling of the human and divine wrapped up as the innermost covering. Then the curtain that represents the blood of the sacrifice. And finally, a curtain of skin surrounding the outermost part. And in the outer courtyard are the symbols of the outward expression of a man, an altar of sacrifice that gives of itself for the purpose of worship, a basin of cleansing that keeps one's actions and way pure before the world, and the entirety of it all wrapped in linen of righteousness, which hangs between hooks of redemption that are founded on a base of judgment. All of this is where our life in relationship to Hashem begins. It begins with Him working within us, and that inward change then becoming an outward reality. And usually this change occurs in such a way that we're not truly cognizant of until long after the change has begun. And the moment that we discover this inward working in our heart, the human way of response is to begin with the outward, to ask, how then shall we live? Or what then shall we do? And so last week we examined the tabernacle once again from the human perspective. 
the path that a person must walk to approach the God of glory and to live in relationship with him. And in this process, each of these pieces of the tabernacle, they retain their meaning as symbols. But as we examined this congruence of God working inward out and men working outward in, we discovered that the place of true relationship occurs in the holy place, the place that's beyond the outer courtyard, and a place that's much deeper than just simple action. The place of relationship with God is composed of his word directed toward us, our words directed towards him, and his spirit giving light to our inner man that was once darkness. Well, this week, the theme is going to shift some. And for the next two weeks, we're not going to be looking at the tabernacle tent itself, but rather our focus is going to shift to those who serve in the tabernacle before we return to the structure and the articles three weeks from now. And this week, we'll be examining the garments, primarily the garments of the high priest. And as we go through this, we're going to run across a whole new set of symbols, symbols that can once more teach us about ourselves and our God and our relationship with him. And in this exploration, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture because these themes and symbols that are represented in these garments are repeated throughout scripture in a multitude of ways. And so we'll be examining a multitude of passages. But while we're at it, let's not lose sight of the purpose of the book of Exodus. Exodus teaches us who our God is and who we are in relationship to him. It is the single greatest direct revelation of Hashem to mankind. And so this must always be in the back of our minds as we proceed through this book and as we try to understand what it has and says for us. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. Exodus 27, 20 through 28, 43. And you, you are to command the children of Israel to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually and the tent of appointment outside the veil which is before the witness. Aaron and his sons are to tend it from evening until morning before Hashem, a law forever to their generations from the children of Israel. And you bring near Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel for serving as priests to me, Aaron, Nadav, and Abihu, Eleazar, Itamar, and the sons of Aaron. And you shall make set-apart garments for Aaron, your brother, for esteem and for comeliness. And you speak to all the wise of heart, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, and they shall make the garments of Aaron to set him apart for him to serve as priest to me. And these are the garments which they make, a breastplate, a shoulder garment, a robe, an embroidered long shirt, a turban, and a girdle. And they shall make set-apart garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, for him to serve as priest to me. And they shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet materials and the fine linen, and shall make the shoulder garment of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen the work of a skilled workman. It is to have two shoulder pieces joined at its two edges, and so it is joined together. And the embroidered band of the shoulder garment which is on it is of the same workmanship, made of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen. And you shall take two shoham stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and the remaining six names on the other stone, according to their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of his signet, engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. Set them in settings of gold. And you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the shoulder garment as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before Hashem on his two shoulders for remembrance. 
and you shall make settings of gold and two chains of clean gold like braided cords, and fasten the braided chains to the settings. And you shall make a breastplate of right ruling, a work of a skilled workman, like the work of a shoulder garment. Make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen. It is square, doubled a span its length and a span its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row is a ruby, a topaz, and an emerald. The second row is a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row is a hyacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row is a beryl, and a shoham, and a jasper. They are set in gold settings. And the stones are according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of the signet, each one with its own name for the twelve tribes. And you shall make braided chains of corded work for the breastplate at the ends of clean gold. You shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, and shall put the two rings of the two ends of the breastplate. And you shall put the two cords of the gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate. And the other two ends of the two cords you fasten to the two settings, and you put them on the shoulder pieces of the shoulder garment in the front. And you shall make two rings of gold, and shall put them on the two ends of the breastplate, on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the shoulder garment. And you shall make two rings of gold and put them on the two shoulder pieces underneath the shoulder garment on the front of it, close to the seam above the embroidered band of the shoulder garment. And they bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the shoulder garment using a blue cord, so that it is above the embroidered band of the shoulder garment, so that the breastplate does not come loose from the shoulder garment. And Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of right ruling over his heart when he goes into the set-apart place for a remembrance before Hashem continually. And into the breastplate of right ruling you shall put the Urim and the Tumim, and they shall be on the heart of Aaron when he goes in before Hashem. And Aaron shall bear the right ruling of the children of Israel on his heart before Hashem continually. And you shall make the robe of the shoulder garment all of blue, and the opening for his head shall be in the middle of it, a woven binding all around its openings, like the opening in a scaled armor, so that it does not tear. And on its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around. A gold bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate on the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be upon Aaron to attend him, and a sound shall be heard when he goes into the set-apart place before Hashem, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. And you shall make a plate of clean gold and engrave on it, like the engravings of a signet, set-apartness to Hashem. And you shall put it on a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban, and it shall be on the forehead of Aaron. And Aaron shall bear the guilt of the set-apart gifts which the children of Israel set apart in all their set-apart gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead for acceptance for them before Hashem. And you shall weave the long shirt of fine linen, and shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the girdle of woven work. And make the long shirts for Aaron's sons, and you shall make girdles for them, and you shall make turbans for them, for esteem and comeliness. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them, and shall ordain them, and shall set them apart, and they shall serve as priests to me. And make linen trousers for them, to cover their nakedness, reaching from the waist to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when he comes into the tent of appointment, or when they come near the altar to attend the set-apart place so that they do not bear the crookedness and die. A law forever to him and to his seed after him. Clothes make the man. This idiomatic saying is one that's ancient and has been recognized in many cultures. According to Erasmus's collection of adages, this phrase dates back as far as Homer to at least around 800 BC. 
Now this was while the kingdom of Israel still existed in the land of Israel, before even the Assyrian exile. He is recorded as having written, Clothes are the man, although we no longer have the works in which Homer makes this statement. In the play Hamlet by William Shakespeare, Polonius proclaims in Act 1, Scene 3, The apparel oft proclaims the man. In fact, this adage has been around so long that it was considered cliché by the early 19th century. And if we examine scripture, we discover that this idea permeates and fills scripture from one end to the other. But in an interesting and fascinating way, because scripture makes the point that it's not what is on the outside that makes a man, but rather it's what on the inside. And we see this throughout as men who were given and gifted special clothing by God repeatedly fail to live up to the expectation that was contained in the symbols of the clothing. High priests throughout scripture failed to live up to the calling that was expected of them, beginning with Eli in the book of 1 Samuel, and probably long before that. But despite this, clothing does have a purpose. It is a symbol that's used throughout scripture. And the symbol is such that it becomes a parable as an outward demonstration of the expected inward change. And the purpose of the high priest's garment is declared in verse 2 of chapter 28. They are for glory and beauty. But what does this mean? Glory and beauty. Dr. Eli Lozorkin Eisenberg of the Israel Institute for Biblical Studies says that the word glory or kevod best has the idea of honor. And there are many scholars who agree with this assessment. He's not the only one that uh, has arrived at this conclusion. In fact, it's one that I fully believe. When we read the word glory in scripture, it's speaking of honor. In fact, the word honor is lekeved, which has the root of kevod, or heavy. Alternatively, the word shame, or kalan, has its root in the word kalal, which means light, or to make light of something. So these garments are meant to bestow honor, and we discover throughout scripture that the giving of clothing is a symbol of giving honor to a person. In Genesis 37.3, and Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children, because he was the son of his old age and he made him a long robe. Or Genesis 45:22, He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Psalm 30, 11 through 12. You have turned my mourning into dancing for me. You have torn off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, so that glory might praise you. You are not silent. O Hashem, my God, I thank you forever. Or Luke 15.22 But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And this is an act that is as old as time. In Genesis 3, when man ate of the tree, and they attempted to hide themselves due to the shame of their nakedness, then God returns honor to them by covering their shame before sending them out. Genesis 3.21 And Hashem Elohim made coats of skin for the man and his wife and dressed them. And throughout scripture, this idea holds true, but then so does the other. For what is the second idea behind the priest's garments? It's the word tiferet in the Hebrew. It's beauty, comeliness, or majesty. And we see these ideas reflected through scripture as well, such as Ezekiel 16, 9-13. And I washed you in water, and I washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil, and I dressed you in the embroidered work, and gave you sandals of leather, 
and I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a crown of adorning on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your dress was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. And you ate fine flour and honey and oil and you were exceedingly beautiful and became fit for royalty. Or Psalm 45, 13 through 14. The daughter of the king is all glory or honor within the palace. Her dress is embroidered with gold. She has brought to the king an embroidered work. Maidens, her companions following her, are brought to you. And so while these are the stated reasons for giving the clothing here in this chapter, if we look even closer throughout scripture, in a spiritual sense, the giving of clothes is a symbol that was used for the idea of bestowing or having righteousness. Example of Zechariah 3, 3 through 4. And Yehoshua was dressed in filthy garments and was standing before the messenger. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your guilt from you, and shall put costly robes on you. Or Isaiah 59, 6. Their webs do not become garments, nor do they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of wickedness, and a deed of violence is in their hands. Or Isaiah 61.10 I greatly rejoice in Hashem, my being exults in my God, for he has put garments of salvation on me. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Or even Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah. And this is just a small sample of the instances of clothing as a symbol used in these three ways. And the high priest's outfit was composed of several pieces. They each have their own significance throughout scripture. There's the ephod, the mantle or the shoulder garment. There's the breastplate. There's the robe or the tunic. There's the embroidered long shirt or coat. There's the turban, crown or mitre. And the girdle or sash. Now, the first piece that's described here is the ephod. Now, there are two types of ephod used in service to the temple as described here in Exodus 28. There is the ephod of the high priests, the one whose instructions are given in the first part of this chapter, and the ephod of the priests, which was simply a white linen ephod. Now, throughout scripture, the ephod is a symbol of one who is operating in the role of a leader of worship. Please, do not confuse this garment with a mantle, such as Elijah's mantle, even though the idea of a mantle is that of holding an appointed office. But the prophet's mantle in Hebrew is a completely different word than ephod. The ephod we see spoken of in many places in scripture, and not all of them are connected to the worship of the God of Israel, but they are all connected to worship. Examples of Judges 8, 25-27. And they said, We shall certainly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the ring from his spoil. And the weight of the gold rings that he requested was 1,700 pieces of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's neck. And Gideon made it into an ephod, a shoulder garment, and set it up in his city Ophrah. And all Israel went whoring after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Or later on in the book of Judges, Judges 18, 18 through 20. And these went into Micah's house and took the idol and the ephod, shoulder garment, and the house idols and the molded image. Then the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, 
Be silent and put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the heart of the priest was glad and he took the ephod and the house idols and the carved image and took his place among the people. Or Hosea 3, 4-5 For many days the children of Israel are to remain without king and without prince and without sacrifice and without pillar and without ephod or house idols. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Hashem their God, and David their king, and fear Hashem and his goodness in the latter days. The high priest's ephod was made with the same material as the inner curtain, the two veils, and the gate to the courtyard. Blue, red, and purple yarn with fine linen. This garment has one thing more than those others do, though. This garment has gold woven into the thread. Now, as we've spoken of before, the gold thread represents a connection to deity. In this, the high priest is being called out as the one who is the closest to Hashem among men. This garment was made of two pieces that were connected through an embroidered band of the same material. The two parts represented of two pieces being joined together to make a whole, something that exists throughout scripture in so many places. Whether it's Israel and Judah in Ezekiel 37, Jew and Gentile in Romans 11, male and female in Genesis 1, or so many more. And this garment acknowledges in the band that binds together these two pieces, that it's Hashem that holds the two together and brings them together into one. On the shoulder of this garment were to be two stones, the Shoham in the Hebrew, or Onyx in the King James Version, and in many subsequent translations. And in the Septuagint, it's emerald. Anyway, on these two stones were to be engraved the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And all throughout scripture, carrying something on your shoulder is symbolic of bearing a burden. Ezekiel 12.12 And the prince who is in their midst is to bear his baggage on his shoulder at dark and to go out. They are to dig through the wall to bring them out through it. He is to cover his face so that he does not see the land with his eyes. Or... Isaiah 10:27, And it shall be in that day that his burden is removed from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing oil. But not all burdens are unwelcome. For example, Isaiah 9:6, For a child is born unto us, a son is given to us, and the rule is on his shoulder, and his name is called Wonder, Counselor, Strong God, Father of Continuity and Prince of Peace. Or Luke 15, 4-5, what man among you, having a hundred sheep and having lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And having found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now the next article in the clothing is the breastplate of judgment. And on the front of the breastplate, there are twelve stones, each stone bearing the name of one of the tribes of Israel, and each stone representing in some way the unique attributes or nature of each tribe. And here in Exodus 28, the breastplate is specifically called out as being over the heart of the high priest. And it and the shoulder stones are stated to be given for the purpose of carrying the names of Israel before Hashem as a remembrance or a memorial. And when we read of a breastplate in scripture in a spiritual sense, it's described as something that is to be an integral part of each one of us. Whether it's Isaiah 59:17, and he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with ardor as a mantle. Or Ephesians 6.14 
Stand then, having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Or First Thessalonians 5, 8. But we who are of the day should be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. These things are to be the things over our hearts as we minister before God. So here the breastplate is one of justice, but Isaiah and Paul recall a breastplate of righteousness. But then Paul also speaks of a breastplate of faith and love. Justice, righteousness, faith, love. Perhaps we should work to keep all of these things before our hearts at all times in connection to Israel. But for the high priest, he carried the burden of leadership on his shoulders and the justice of the nation of Israel on his chest, over his heart. And within the breastplate are two stones of mystical import. Frankly, we don't really know a whole lot about these two stones. About everything you read out there is pure speculation. The names of these two stones are light and perfection, or wholeness and integrity in a way. They were in some way used to discover the will of God. Uh, the Urim and the Thummim are only mentioned five times in Scripture, and three of those are in the Torah. Once here, once in Leviticus when the breastplate is put onto the priests in chapter 8, once in Deuteronomy in the blessing given by Moses to the tribe of Levi, and then the only other times it's mentioned in Scripture is in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, it is declared that those who claimed to be of the line of Aaron but had no proof should not eat of the holy thing until they recovered the Urim and the Tumim that were able to let God decide. These stones are thought to in some way to represent a way of casting lots before God in order to get direction from him. Other than that, like I said before, we just don't know. On the hem of the robe were to be woven pomegranates, evenly spaced with bells. Now, there's no single understanding of what these represent, only that the high priest should wear them so that he does not die when he enters the holy place. There's no agreement as to the number of pomegranates there were. Uh, Targum Jonathan states that there were 71. Maimonides says that there were 72. Clement of Alexandria states that there were 366. And yet others claim that there were only 12. And their symbolism is not agreed upon either. Uh, it's thought that one, that the high priest was to add his voice to the law, to expound upon it for the people to better understand, and the bells added their sounds to his movement. Two, it's thought that they provided an offering of praise every time that the priest moved. Three, that they marked dignity or royalty, a symbol which is attested to in other cultures as the hem of a person's garment was the place where tokens of their role or their status were attached to their garments. Four, that the bells provided an audible link between the high priest inside the tabernacle and the worshippers outside, and that the sound of the bells united them together in one accord. Five, that the bells helped keep the high priest's mind on his task so that his mind did not wonder while he was serving. Six, pomegranates are a fruit that is mostly seed, signifying the propagation of life. Now, we don't know which one of these it means. The Bible never tells us. Perhaps all of these are true. Perhaps none of them are true. We can't be sure because there is nothing more given. All it says is, so that the sound will be heard, so that he does not die. 
Now, we do know from Scripture that the pomegranate is a fruit that was considered a blessing, as it's specifically called out in several places in Scripture, and it's connected to the idea of blessing and bounty. For example, in Deuteronomy 8, 8, where it's describing the land of Israel, it's a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Or Numbers 13, 23. And they came to the Wadi Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bore it between two of them on a pole, also of the pomegranates and of the figs. And we find out in Kings that the pomegranates featured heavily in the construction and decoration of the first temple. One example, 1 Kings 7.18. And he made the columns and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top. And so he did for the other capital. Now, after the ephod and all of its accoutrements, the next thing described is the crown, turban, or mitre. This was the headwear of the high priest. This crown was composed of a single plate of gold with the words, Holy to Hashem, engraved on it. This was then attached to a linen turban with a blue cord. This headgear was a reminder that the high priest was set apart. In a very real way, he was holier than thou, so to speak. And the high priest had been anointed by God and had to live by certain restrictions of holiness that others didn't have to live by. He was the representative and the intercessor from the people that was given the opportunity to enter in before Hashem. And he was the representative of God to the people. Now, in a way, the high priest served as the ambassador between God and man the one who God allowed into his presence, and the one who was closest to God among the people. And yet, a servant with the greatest responsibility of making sure that everything went correctly. And the crown represents a measure of royalty and authority given to the high priest in the name of Hashem. And we see this through scripture, Isaiah 28, 5-6. In that day, Hashem of hosts is for a crown of splendor and a headdress of comeliness to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gates. Or Isaiah 62, 1-3. For Zion's sake I am not silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I do not rest, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a lamp that burns, and the nations shall see your righteousness, and all kings your honor. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of Hashem designates, And you shall be a crown of comeliness in the hand of Hashem, and a royal headdress in the hand of your God. Or Psalm 132, 17-18 There I make the horn of David grow. I set up a lamp for my anointed one. I put shame on his enemies, while on him his diadem shall shine. Or 2 Timothy 4, 8 For the rest there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Master, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to those loving his appearing. Or 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you shall receive the never-fading crown of honor. And then to wrap everything up, instructions are given to make the long shirt that went closest to the skin in the turban of fine linen, and the girdle or belt that wrapped it all together of woven work. Even though it's not stated here, this girdle was composed of the same material as the gate and the veils, and the girdle was the same for all priests, both the normal priests and the high priests. We don't read it in this chapter, but in Exodus 39, 27-29 we read, And they made the long shirts of fine linen, the work of a weaver for Aaron and his sons, and a turban of fine linen, 
and the turban ornaments of fine linen, and the short trousers of fine woven linen, and a girdle of fine woven linen with blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of an embroiderer, as Hashem had commanded Moses. And this is the high priest's garments. They are a picture of justice, mercy, love, and responsibility. But most of all, honor. And it describes the role that the priest was to take on and to make his own. And in this way, these instructions and these garments, they do make the man. For these garments reveal God's heart to his people, and they bear within them from the woven wool and linen and gold of the ephod to the crown upon his head, the declaration that this man is the closest that any human can come to divinity, not in character or action, but definitely in proximity. He is the one who is allowed to approach the king. And this is where the high priests of the temple system messed up because they allowed pride to overtake them and they began to be petty tyrants unto themselves. But just as with the tabernacle, the garments that the priests wore were to be a parable to the high priest that they were to recognize that it was always intended for them to be closest to God and not just in proximity, but in character as well. They were to truly model God to the people as an ambassador. And they failed. And so the need arose for a new high priest. Hebrews seven twenty six through 28 For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, kind, innocent, undefiled, having been separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need, as those high priests, to offer up a sacrifice offerings day by day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the Torah appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the Torah appoints the Son, having been perfected forever. And Yeshua, having taken up this role of high priest and presiding over the service in the temple, the perfect high priest who was able to properly demonstrate the character of God to men, a high priest without the taint of the seed of Adam, without sin, perfect and whole before Hashem. Hebrews 3, 1-6 puts it this way, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling, closely consider the emissary and high priest of our confession, Messiah, Yeshua, who was trustworthy to him who appointed him, and also Moses and all his house. For this one has been deemed worthy of more honor than Moses, as much as he who built the house enjoys more respect than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all is God. And Moses indeed was trustworthy in all his house as a servant, for a witness of what should be spoken later. But Messiah as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to the boldness and the boasting of the expectation, firm to the end. We have now a perfect high priest. After the description of the garments of the high priest in the parable that they teach comes only four verses with a similar parable of the priests told to the garments of the priests. For what was the composition of the priests' garments? White linen. Only white linen, except for the belt or the girdle. And all throughout scripture we read of this pure white linen as a symbol, especially in Revelation where the symbol is directly called out in Revelation chapter 19 verse 8. And to her it was given to be dressed in fine linen, clean and bright, 
for the fine linen is the righteousness of the holy ones. Or in Revelation 19, verse 14, And the armies of heaven, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. But there's another parable told through linen that is pretty fascinating in my opinion because it's used by at least two prophets and in a way they provide a back and forth commentary on each other, separated by nearly 150 years, but with a unified theme. So first we'll start with the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived during the time of the Babylonian exile. The first parts of his book are dedicated to making declarations of the ways in which Judah had fallen short of living up to the expectation of Hashem and living up to the mercy that he showed them centuries earlier when Assyria had invaded and taken away their brothers to the north. In Jeremiah 13, the prophet has given instructions to do something as a parable to the people of their state before God. Jeremiah 13, 1-11 Thus Hashem said to me, Go and get yourself a linen girdle and put it on your loins, but do not put it in water. So I bought a linen girdle according to the word of Hashem and put it on my loins. And the word of Hashem came to me a second time saying, Take the girdle that you have bought, which is on your loins, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. And I went and hid it by the Euphrates as Hashem commanded me. And it came to be after many days that Hashem said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the girdle which I commanded you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the girdle from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the girdle, ruined. It was completely useless. And the word of Hashem came to me, saying, Thus said Hashem, Thus I ruined the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to bow themselves to them, is like this girdle which is completely useless. For as the girdle clings to the loins of a man, so I have caused the house of Israel and all the house of Judah to cling to me, declares Hashem, to become mine for a people and for a name and for praise and for an adorning. But they did not listen. Hashem then goes on to describe how he is going to cast off the girdle of Judah, as, as Jeremiah did, and bury them in the people of the Euphrates, meaning Babylon, and they will become as useless there as that girdle that Jeremiah had buried. Now, 150 years earlier, in the northern neighbors of Israel, they faced a similar judgment. They too were facing exile, to exile this time to the kingdom of Assyria. And they had a prophet in those days that was appointed to declare this in Israel, and that prophet was Isaiah. In Isaiah 64, 4-7, we read, Since the beginning of the ages, they have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You shall meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. See, you were wroth when we sinned in them a long time, and should we be saved? And all of us have become as one unclean, and all of our righteousness are as soiled rags, and all of us faded like a leaf. And our crookednesses, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to be strengthened in you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have consumed us because of our crookednesses. In this passage, your righteousness, throughout scripture, your righteousness is steeped in the image of linen garments, have become filthy rags. If you've ever heard a teaching on that filthy rags item, what that's kind of describing, please go look it up. It's not something pleasant. 
But it's the same parable that Jeremiah was given. Take the linen garment, the righteousness of Israel, the righteousness of Judah, soil it and bury it until it becomes useless rags. Revelation 3, 4 through 5 tells us this. Nevertheless, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white because they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be dressed in white robes, and I shall by no means blot out his name from the book of life. But I shall confess his name before my father and before his messengers. And if you could go back to Isaiah and you continue on, you will then read a comparison of God as the potter and Israel as the clay. And if you go to Jeremiah, just five chapters later, after the parable with the linen rags, you'll get the same parable once again with Jeremiah being told to go to the potter's house. Go read those in conjunction. Isaiah and Jeremiah, they use the same symbols throughout. And this is the parable of the priestly garments. For the priests themselves, there's not a whole lot of responsibility. They serve under the authority of the high priest. They engage in worship practices, and they too have limitations placed upon them that the rest of the nation does not have. They get to eat of the holy things, they get the skins of the Ola sacrifices, they get the meat of the Chata'at or the sin sacrifices, and they get a portion of even the peace offerings, as well as getting to eat of the table of showbread. All that's required is that they learn the lesson of the parable of their garments. They are to live their lives in righteousness. They are to model the character of Hashem for the world to see. Their portion and their expectation and their hope is not in a human inheritance. They do not have a land to call their own. They do not have even a reliable means of income. They take part only in what the people give. That is their portion and their sustenance. They live lives of full trust in Hashem and His mercy to provide for their every need. 1 Peter 2, 4-10 says, Drawing near to Him, a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice offerings acceptable to God through Yeshua Messiah. Because it is contained in the scripture, See, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, chosen, precious, and he who believes on him shall by no means be put to shame. This preciousness, then, is for those of you who believe. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock that makes for falling, who stumble because they are disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for a possession that you should proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained compassion, but now obtained compassion. We, the body of Messiah in this age, we are the priesthood of the Most High, who serve under the authority of our high priest, Yeshua. And we are to clothe ourselves in righteousness. Psalm 132.9 says, Let your priests put on righteousness, and your lovingly committed ones shout for joy. Or Job 29.14, I put on righteousness, and it robed me. Justice was my cloak and my turban. We are the priesthood of this age, and we are to be continually clothed in righteousness. 
Hashem has given us a gift of clean white garments, and He has raised us from shame and honor. He has lavished upon us gifts of abundance and grace, and He has elevated us to a position of royalty among men. And being a king means being a servant. We cannot make the same mistake of the priests of old who grasped their position in pride and elevated themselves and lorded their position over those who they were tasked with serving. They made themselves great in their own eyes, and they forgot that their position came only by the grace of Hashem, and not because of anything that they had done. And then, once elevated, there is that standard to hold. For people will look on us in order to see God. And we must live our lives in a way that reflects God truly and honestly. Ecclesiastes 9, 7-8 says, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a glad heart. For God has already approved of your works. Let your garments be white at all times. And let your head lack no oil. And as we darash chai, we too are gifted these white garments. Garments of righteousness, garments of praise, garments of the priesthood. And these garments, they allow us to enter in before the Most High God of life as we seek life in all that we do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.